Welcome back to Fish Bites. On the road, on the toilet, on a run, in bed. However it is that you consume this episode, we are thrilled to have you in the audience. Subscribe to the Fish Stripes podcast, please, on Apple, Google, Spotify, Podbean, wherever else you get your pods. That's where we're available on Fish Stripes, covering all things Miami Marlins related. You know me by now. It's Eli Sussman and making his Fish Bites debut during this first segment of this episode, it's LJ Garcia. You can find him on Twitter at LJ Garcia underscore FS. And I'm really excited to have his perspective on fishstripes.com on the pod as well to steer that Marlins fan conversation in new and interesting directions. He figures to be a recurring guest on the pod, maybe an occasional host. We'll see. Uh, LJ, thank you for taking the time to come on. Eli, thank you so much for having me. Um, love listening to the podcast. Never thought the day would come where I'd actually be a part of it. So very excited here. Very excited to be joining the Fish Stripes team. Um, you know, we're coming off of a 105 loss season, so things can really only go up from here. And I'm excited about the future of the Marlins organization in general. So, um, yeah, I appreciate you having me and uh, looking forward to, to getting things going here. Well, I put you in a tough spot because right after I bring you into Fish Stripes, your first quote like assignment was representing the Marlins in this off-season simulation that we do on SB Nation every single year. It's nothing that I've ever participated in, in myself, but I always delegate it to somebody who has the Marlins priorities in mind and thinks creatively. Uh, every year for the last handful of years, it's been choosing some person to represent each of the 30 teams and to do a simulation of for everything that would happen in a normal offseason in terms of arbitration-eligible players, free agents, and trades. You represented the Marlins this time, so I was able to see behind the scenes and what the instructions were for how to go about the simulation. But for the rest of our audience, can you explain how exactly this simulation worked, how you communicated with other teams, and ultimately what you did representing the Marlins in, in this exercise? Yeah, so going into this, I, I really didn't know what to expect because I had never done anything like that before. And as you had mentioned, just joined uh, Fish Stripes. So, um, you know, the the instructions that I had gotten, it, it kind of, it made it pretty clear that this was basically just going to be, I, I would refer to it as a Mac off season, but instead of an off season, which is from November until March, um, this is condensed into about three days. So there was a lot of, my phone was just blowing up for, for a few days there. And, um, how it worked was, um, there were 30 representatives slash GMs, whatever, whatever you want to call it. And we were basically all, um, in a group and we would, uh, we would be direct messaging each other, trying to work out possible trades. I had to decide on, um, some contracts, whether or not I wanted to take on some contracts. Uh, basically, all of of what you would expect from a general manager, um, all those duties, but just just condensed into a window of a few days. So, so it was a lot. A lot was going on. But um, yeah, I, I I made a few trades, uh, made a couple free agent signings, a, a couple decisions, and it really opened up my eyes to, first of all, what what these general managers go through, how it's not as easy as we fans may make it seem. And also kind of opened up my eyes to the Marlins specifically, where it's like, okay, I get why the rebuild 
isn't going to happen overnight because there are a lot of aspects that you're dealing with where it's like, boy, I'd really like to get this guy, but don't have anything that's going to fit this team's needs. Or, you know, I really want to get rid of this guy, but nobody's, nobody's really wanting him. And if they do want him, it's not going to be something that benefits us. So right. it kind of just it, it made me apathetic toward what these general managers deal with, specifically, like I said, within the Marlins organization. Yeah, and it should be noted that the it wasn't entirely 100% true to what you'll see in real life. For I, I mean, the one key difference is that the people representing their teams overall were a little more eager to spend money, not having the same strict uh, restrictions that real GMs have in terms of the budget that they can use, not being so fearful of, let's say, the luxury tax threshold. I mean, these things don't apply specifically to the Marlins because still in this rebuilding phase and had so much flexibility in order in potentially to add as much talent as you thought was appropriate at that time. Uh, but But what would you say was the biggest move that you made in the simulation and why was it that you made that move? Well, first up, to kind of piggyback off what you said, I, I do want to preface this with you're 100% right about spending a little bit more than you would normally expect your GMs to spend, especially with a team like the Marlins and where they're at in their rebuild. Um, I didn't want to go, I didn't want to be unrealistic and go out and sign like J.D. Martinez, Garrett Cole, and Steven Strasburg and have a $2 billion payroll or anything like that. Um, but what what I did do was I did spend a little bit more than you can probably expect Michael Hill to spend. So my first order of business, and, and I don't necessarily think that the Marlins will do the same thing, but I wanted to first off spend all the money that came off of the Prado and Castro contracts. Mm -hmm. uh, about 25 million came off the books with those two no longer on the team. So uh, my first order of business was I declined the option on Starlin Castro. So just, just like what the Marlins did, like how they announced last week, they were going to buy out that $16 million left on his deal for, for $1 million. Um, another thing that, that I wanted to do was I wanted to keep the rotation intact. You know, the young guys in the rotation right now, they need the innings that they're going to be getting. Um, another thing is Urania is going to be moving back to the rotation more than likely, and Sixto Sanchez should see the bigs at some point this year. So the last thing that I wanted to do was have a free agent starter come in and block somebody else from from getting their innings. So to answer your question, though, I would say the biggest move that I made was I made a deal with the Colorado Rockies where I traded Chris Momka for Peter Lambert, Jake McGee, and Daniel Murphy. So uh, in the past, the Marlins have, have traded some pitching aspects for hitters. And for those who don't know, Chris Momka, um, he's a, I believe it was a second round pick of the Marlins. He's still pretty young. Well, he was uh, he's probably a, a second round talent. He fell all the way to the 12th round because of signability issues. They thought he would probably, most teams thought he would go on to college and the Marlins had to pay way above slot value to get him in the 12th round. But yeah, he was that kind of talent where there was good reason to believe he'll be potential starter one day. Right, right. So still very young. And uh, what was going through my mind when I made that move was in the past, you know, you, you've seen the Marlins trade some pitching aspects for hitters, like uh, the Valamont for Lewin Diaz move, uh, Zach Gallen for Jeff Chisholm. And you've, you've got a guy, Daniel Murphy, who, who can play 
second base. He can play first base. Uh, Isan Diaz, you know, we, we might not want him playing every day right away. So Murphy gives the Marlins flexibility on the right side of the infield. And there's two more years on this deal. So, you know, we're talking 2020, 2021. Um, I, I feel good about him being in the lineup for those two years because this probably isn't going to be a, a team that's going to rely on the current core of prospects they have right now just yet. Um, and Jake McGee is another guy that has two more years on his deal. So short term, I think it's going to make the Marlins a little bit more, um, have a little bit more, I don't want to say star power. Cause I mean, McGee's not, you know, he's not a, I wouldn't classify him as a superstar. Daniel Murphy, you know, he's got a history of, of being one of the better talents in major league baseball getting a little bit older now, but I think, I think that's a move that's going to excite some fans. I think it's needed as far as like the point that I mentioned about Isan Diaz. Um, so I, that was the biggest name that we landed in this offseason simulation was Daniel Murphy uh, in that trade, along with Peter Lambert and Jake McGee. And we're sending Chris Maka to the Colorado Rockies. Yeah, well, you don't need to argue that move too much to me because Daniel Murphy is an exact player that I've been targeting myself in seeing how this offseason would play out, recognizing that the Rockies are a team that not necessarily in a big market, but yet they have a pretty exorbitant payroll relative to their market size right now because of a lot of core players that are already signed up. And Murphy's a guy that is probably a little bit overpaid when you consider his age at this point, um, some of his injury concerns. Uh, now a couple years removed from being at his best, but when he was at his best, I mean, I think people forget that he was a top five finisher in MVP balloting just a few years ago. I mean, he was a guy that even today is someone you could trust to put the ball in play, make a lot of solid contact. It's more of a question of how much you give back defensively when he's in there. Now that, I mean, this past season, he played a lot of first base. And even before that, when he was a second baseman, it was pretty, it, it was a pretty like poorly kept secret that he would be a below average player at that position, but you would live with it because of the offensive upside. So, I mean, that's exactly the kind of move that I would, I was hoping they may make in real life, understanding that if, if you absorb these kind of bad contracts and you're not giving up quite as much in return, Chris Machma being a guy that has a lot of potential, but so much risk in a guy that's that far away. This was just his first full, not even his full pro season. It was his first season in pro ball. And he only pitched a handful of innings in, at the rookie level. So, I, so I approve of that. I, again, the conditions are a little bit different from real life, but yeah, that seems like a really um, interesting trade-off. And Daniel Murphy, if nothing else, he does have that name recognition as being a guy that has played in postseason games. And um, he kind of has a reputation of being someone that helps his teammates, that he's someone that treats hitting very scientifically. And you would think there's some sort of positive effect that you have just by having him around young hitters where uh He's, he's somewhat of an assistant to the assistant hitting coach. Even it's a role that he kind of embraces where he, he understands some of those fundamentals and he can impart them to players that have a lot less experience. Right. Clubhouse leader. And he's got a lot of experience with the NL East too, having played for the Mets and the nationals. So I, I think that would be a good fit. And um, you know, you, you were, you mentioned the Colorado Rockies and the situation that they're in. I mean, right now their competitive window is wide open and they have a lot of, of contracts that are holding them back a little bit. So in my discussions with the Rockies GM, I could tell, you know, their, their main thing is they want to shed some payroll right now. And I actually made another trade with the Rockies uh, this offseason where I, I think 
Marlins fans might not be as happy with this one, but I did trade away Ryan Stanek for Antonio Sensatella and Jonathan Daza. Now, for those who don't know about Daza, he's a top 10 prospect in the Rockies system right now. He's an outfielder. Uh, Sensatella is the guy that uh, you can kind of let him walk after this year. The, the the trade was made to get Daza. I really wanted. I thought uh, that would have that would be a good fit for the Marlins organization. He's an outfield prospect. Stanek. I know they just got him that Trevor Richards Nick Anderson trade, but Stanek's going to be 29 midway through this year. So when it does come time to compete, I, I see Daza being more likely to be a part of that process rather than Ryan Stanek. So that was my second trade with Colorado that I, that I made. That was, well, that was actually my own, my second trade uh, that I made of the offseason. Those are the only two trades I was able to swing. Uh, wanted to make a few more moves, but like I said, you know, at the beginning of this, it's tough. Yeah, it's not as easy as uh, as you might think. It's not like playing fantasy baseball, I'll tell you that. Personally, I wasn't all that familiar with Daza, but just pulling up his stuff right now, made his major league debut this past year, and at, at this very moment he's falling just short of being – uh, qualified as a as a rookie, so he still has rookie eligibility, and that's why he's still on their prospect list. But he's a guy that's pretty much major league ready as an outfielder, and yeah, that's one of the really complicated spots they're in with the outfield. And we're going to make a transition to to the real life offseason plan now because that's where that position they're in, where we have a handful of prospects in the Marlins system that are among the very best prospects in the system. Uh, but it seems sort of unlikely that any one of those are going to be on the opening day roster. All those guys are either going to be potential midseason call-ups in 2020 or even 2021 and beyond, whether it's Monte Harrison or Jesus Sanchez, uh, Victor Victor Mesa, or just going to this past draft and like J.J. Bleday, like all these guys that have really exciting potential and in some cases really well-rounded skill sets, but the timeline isn't quite there yet. And and Daza seems like a guy you would plug in. Oh my good. He hit 364 in AAA last yeah. year with a 952 OPS. I mean, even considering the conditions in AAA, that's uh, it's pretty tremendous. So, yeah, I mean, that's another one that I like. It. It's very creative. And Ryan Stanek, it, I thought it was kind of unfair to him that uh, he was put in somewhat of an unfamiliar role when he would join the Marlins last year. But certainly someone that uh, if you were to flip him immediately, it's not like the fans down here have any super fond feelings for him. Uh, that's another really creative one. So, uh, again, I can understand the motivations behind it. Yeah, I'd like to see the team go after some outfield help in 2020, and I made a couple other moves. I did sign Avisail Garcia. I got into a little bit of a bidding war, so I, the price tag was a little bit higher than I wanted, but uh, I tried getting Albert Elmora. It just wasn't happening. The Cubs weren't giving him up. So um, I, I did sign Avisail Garcia for two years at $30 million, which uh, is a pretty big contract. I, I don't think the Marlins are going to quite be shelling that out in real life, but um, – He's a power hitter. He had 20 home runs, drove in 72 last year. Um, the Marlins saw that firsthand. He had an absolute rocket off of Caleb Smith at Marlins Park, for those that remember that. Uh, he made $3.5 million last year, so, so it's a big jump. But you know he's going to get some playing time this year if he's in Miami. And uh, also, I signed Cameron Mabin, bringing him back to Miami on a one-year, $1 million deal. Yasiel Puig was another one that, uh, that I wanted to get, and I, I think he would be a good fit for the Marlins. Uh, he ended up getting a three-year deal for $33 million. When I saw what he got compared to what Garcia got, I kind of second-guessed myself a little bit. But coming off a seven-year deal, which is what Puig was just playing on with the Dodgers, you know, I, I thought he would have wanted more. Um, so 
you know, if, you know, like I mentioned in the, in the Murphy and the McGee deals that, that we took on, you know, I'd really hope by 2022 we're winning with our current core of prospects and not guys like um, Daniel Murphy, guys like Yassiel Puig, you know, the, the big free agent signings that we might be making right now. You know, I, I'd like to see the uh, the fruits of our labor right now kind of coming coming to fruition uh, by 2022. This past week that uh, we're coming off of, Michael Hill is heading over to the general manager meetings, which um, is not the most eventful time. There usually aren't very many transactions that happen directly during those meetings, but they set the stage for a lot of the moves that you see immediately after that and before Thanksgiving. And right before heading to the meetings, he made his usual very vague comments about what he plans to do with the team. Well, for us, when we when we look at, at where we are organizationally, there's a, a, a lot of tremendous things going on um, with what we've been building, you know, throughout the minor leagues and the success of our prospects. But, you know, I, I think Donnie said it as the season ended. We're, we're looking to, to take another step at the major league level and uh, and continue our ascension towards, uh, you know, towards playoffs and, and championship uh, baseball. I think. In, in doing that, he, he's not going to rule out any particular scenario. He didn't rule out trading certain prospects. He didn't rule out going after the biggest free agents, even if they have a qualifying offer attached to them. So he, he's not closing the door on anything. What do you expect to actually happen this offseason with Michael Hill in charge, even though he's not really tipping his hand at the moment, based on where the team was this past offseason and your feel for what the fan base expects? Uh, what should be the goals you think and and the differences that this roster should have in 2020 compared to 2019? Well, this, uh, this group needs to have a roadmap on how to get this thing back on track. And and what I mean by that is the team has to be more interesting for the casual fan. You know, I wrote a, I wrote in a blog this week, which you can read on fish stripes about the decline in ratings. You know, the Marlins have one of the lowest attendance figures in major league baseball. So they need to create a buzz in South Florida right now. And for, for Michael Hill to come out and say, yeah, we need to improve upon our 105 loss season. Well, yeah, of course. You know, the only year where the Marlins had a worse record than 2019 was 1998. And that was the year of the Wayne High Zanga fire sale, the, the infamous fire sale after winning the World Series in 97. So I'm happy that he, I'm happy that they're coming out and saying that they're willing to sign a guy with a qualifying offer. I don't necessarily agree with that, though, but I think it's a good sign of their willingness to spend going forward. You know, as much as I'd be excited about Marcelo Zuna coming back, as much as I'd be excited about Jose Abreu, I'm not sure if I see them being effective when the team is ready to compete, and I value the draft picks. Um, So Michael Hill, yeah, he came out and said that they'd be willing to sign somebody with a qualifying offer, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Derek Jeter, or Brian Chatton, or Gary Denbo is, is going to agree with that. Um, but as, as far as specifics go, one thing that I would like to see this team do more is steal bases a little bit more. You know, Birdie led the team last year. He had 17 steals. Uh, for whatever reason, Don Mattingly is just, he's not a guy that's going to, that likes to, uh, to send guys. Um, but, I just I'd, I'd like to see some improvement. That's why I went out and I signed uh, I signed Cameron Mabin. I think that's the guy who's he's not going to steal as many bases as he would have maybe ten years ago, but he's going to bring you some speed on the base path. Um, another guy that I think would be a good fit, who just won the 2019 Heart and Hustle Award last year, is Howie Kendrick. Uh, I made the argument for signing Daniel Murphy earlier to play second base. I think to get Howie Kendrick maybe on a one year deal. 
I think that'd be a perfect uh, a, a perfect spot for him as well because you get Howie Kendrick coming off of a World Series championship. He can bring that leadership to the clubhouse. The guy's been playing in the majors since, what, like 06, 07? So just having his presence is going to help out these young guys a lot, and it's going to take some of the pressure off Isan Diaz. So I'd love to see that. Um, and they should definitely, definitely go after some help in the bullpen because as promising as this rotation is right now, you've got to give them some help. And you can't roll with the worst bullpen in all of baseball. I know, Eli, you mentioned um, it was Sergio Romo that you mentioned last uh, last time in, in one of the previous podcasts. Yes. And uh, by the way, I was shocked that if they signed him to a $7.5 million deal, that would be the most money that this ownership group is committed to a free agent. That's that's a pretty crazy stat. Yeah. I but, mean, that's uh, the thing that I've looked at the past two years where, I mean, you understand what the position that the franchise was in and, and tearing down and how um, when you have a good chunk of the fan base going along with that, they don't necessarily expect any significant spending to happen in between. But there's, um, but yeah, now's the time where they have so few commitments and someone like Sergio Romo, um, and it would take more than just him because what's so complicated about the bullpen is that it can improve in very unpredictable ways where if you look at last year, they acquired Nick Anderson in a very quiet trade from the twins. And he turns out to be great. And of course, later in the year after they already flipped him to Tampa Bay, he turned out to be amazing. And it, it, he came pretty much out of obscurity to become that type of player. Not, it's not necessarily that you want to spend on the biggest name reliever out there because it is a more volatile position than pretty much anything else. But there are those certain guys, whether it's someone like Sergio Romo, where, where he has he's working with some of the lowest fastball velocity in baseball, but yet he has this track record of being able to get guys out despite that. And just so many other players that are available, um, Romo kind of being the exception where he, he may take a two-year deal, but so many other guys on this market, you could be had on a single year. It's such a low-risk thing for this team. And if those players really do overachieve then you may end up trading them during the season and further improving your farm system uh, or if you just really like them then they turn out to be guys that you can actually build around in that pen so yeah i'm on board with the bullpen as well i mean just some particular things that bothered me this past year and going back several years um i'd have to dig up the numbers but there's this pretty incredible trend going back about seven years and four or five different hitting coaches that the Marlins are always at the very top in ground ball rate and how often those ground balls, of course, turn into routine outs or even double plays. And despite the ballpark that they play in, and as you mentioned, um, probably, well, something that you can infer based on your comments is that because of the ballpark they play in, it is important to have speed, just realizing that you're not going to hit as many home runs as other teams, but you can still produce runs by taking extra bases in between. I mean, that, that being said, when you are putting the ball in play, you give yourself a better opportunity to get extra base hits when you actually elevate the ball. Howie Kendrick is, is a particular guy that knows all about that. Daniel Murphy, as we mentioned earlier, um, and even just guys that have good plate discipline. The Marlins were among the most over-aggressive teams in baseball last year, not only in like taking fewer walks than anybody else, but simply not using pitches the way that other teams do, like not working opposing starters and getting into opposing bullpens. So simply having guys that work deep counts, that's another one that could have a lot of indirect benefits to the rest of their lineup if they pick up a few veterans that know how to do that. And and those are guys that 
you can find in a lot of different shapes and forms, whether it's someone like Yasiel Puig, who has a lot more plate discipline than he sometimes gets credit for. Uh, Brock Holt is someone I've mentioned before who is not necessarily even expecting to be a full-time player, but having players that are both versatile defensively so that they don't block any particular top prospect that comes up through the system, but also just have a lot of these fundamental offensive characteristics that they can draw upon and impart to their younger teammates. It's, it's, this is like a big year to take that incremental step forward. And, and it doesn't really take all that much of an investment to get like a higher caliber of player that you can trust and that you could actually market pretty well. Yeah, and to go back to the bullpen briefly, I think Nick Vincent is a name that makes a lot of sense. Uh, he was with the Giants and Phillies last year, and he's got he's worked previously with Mel Stoudemire Jr. in Seattle, and uh, Stoudemire just got signed to a new two-year contract, so I think he would help out the bullpen a lot. And um, another another need that I would like to see them address would be they have to sign a backup catcher uh, in the off-season sim over this past weekend, I was trying really hard to get Luis Campisano of the Padres. He's a prospect who I've heard comparisons of Yadier Molina to. Seems to be shortening his swing a little bit, so he's not always swinging for the fences. He's got a great arm. Price tag was just too high. Uh, another guy I wanted was tried to get was Jake Rogers. Uh, Detroit got him in the Justin Verlander trade. Great defensive catcher. Still needs to work the plate, but he got a taste of the majors last year. So you know, I know it's it's not always easy to find a, a backup catcher, but you know, with, with just Jorge Alfaro right now, because we don't know what's going to go on with Chad Wallach. Uh, Brian Holiday is not here anymore. I think backup catcher needs to be a priority for this team as well. Absolutely. Something that I've looked even deeper into is that the higher levels of their minor league system is pretty bare when it comes to other catching options. I mean, there's another gap before they actually get to some of their decent prospects like Will Fortes and Will Banfield, both those guys are Nick Fortes and Will Banfield, both those guys being multiple years away. So yeah, internally, that's the one position that they probably have less depth than any other. And so yeah, there are a lot of options out there in free agency. And as much as I love Jorge Alfaro, and the one thing that a lot of people love about him is the intensity that he plays with and the hustle that he plays with. But that makes him, I would think, more susceptible to injury. And even this past year, uh, he played, he was their primary catcher but wasn't a qualified hitter, didn't play quite as much as your typical starting catcher does. And I think part of that is just understanding, um, well, where they are in their rebuild, where they want them to be fully healthy a couple of years from now and fully developed by then, but also understanding that he sometimes can be his own worst enemy with how often he likes to hustle and the kind of contact that he's willing to take behind the plate. So I'm all on board with that as well. Uh, just touching on some current events, before I get you out of here with LJ Garcia, our new guy here at Fish Stripes, we have some Marlins-related news, one of those being that Baseball Hall of Fame has its modern baseball era ballot going to be voted on at the winter meetings, I believe. They're going to make that announcement about a few additional Hall of Famers that are not on the traditional writer's ballot, and these guys coming from the 1980s and the 1990s. And if you know anything about baseball in the 80s and 90s, Don Mattingly was one of the faces of baseball. Even at a time when the Yankees weren't making the playoffs, he was amazing as an all-around player. And uh, you had mentioned before coming on the pod that you just wanted to talk a little bit about Mattingly's career and whether or not you think he'll be able to crack through to the Hall of Fame finally, because he's been a guy, one of the more notable players that had a great playing career and yet to this point is left out of Cooperstown. 
Yeah, when those players for the modern committee got announced, there were no Marlins that uh, that were announced. But uh, Donnie Baseball, yeah, um, you know, he had a long career with the New York Yankees in the 80s. Um, his war of 42.4 and, and 222 career home runs, those don't really jump out at you. But he is a career 307 hitter, uh, led the league in hits twice, and he was the leader of the New York Yankees in the 1980s. And, and you know, you mentioned earlier about how they they weren't going to the World Series back then, but a lot of people don't realize this. The Yankees had the most wins out of any team in the 1980s, despite not winning a championship. So it's, it's kind of funny how his career played out because his rookie year was 1982, the year after uh, they lost to the Dodgers in the World Series. And then his final season was 95, the year before they won uh, the World Series in 96, another World Series drought. So it's, it's kind of funny. He had this long 14-year career with the Yankees, no World Series appearances. But, yeah, he was he was the leader of that team. And I think um, that'll get recognized. I do think he'll get in this year. Uh, I My picks to get in, I think I think Mattingly gets in. Uh, Lou Whitaker, I think, is another one that's long overdue. I think he gets in. Thurman Munson is another one where I think he'll finally get in. And Tommy John, I think. I, I see those four players. Uh, going in with this modern committee and uh, getting into the Hall of Fame this year. And what makes Mattingly kind of unique? Of course, he's managing the Marlins now the past four years and under contract for another two years. Before that, the Dodgers. And it's pretty unusual for a player of his caliber to go into coaching and then go into managing because he was actually a, a coach on the Yankees staff for a handful of years before even getting his managerial job. He's just always been around the game, which is unusual when you have that type of career and you don't necessarily need to work for the money anymore, but yet he's been a real lifer around baseball. And another guy that could in to some extent follow in his footsteps is Martin Prado, where we have a report now from John Heyman earlier this past week that Prado's telling his friends that he's likely going to retire. He hasn't filed the paperwork yet, but he's a free agent. He's coming off a pretty unproductive season and really several unproductive years. So he just understands that the writing is on the wall a little bit, not going to generate all that much interest in free agency uh, would probably have to settle for a minor league deal. And for all that he's accomplished in his career, he's been around for parts of 14 major league seasons. And he had um, a couple of years in there as a full-time player was an all-star one year with the Braves made uh, tens of millions of dollars, including $40 million dollars in that very last contract extension with the Marlins, that this seems to be the end for Prado. He was beloved in the Marlins clubhouse. Um, and I think more just more specifically, he has some of those attributes that a lot of people see in someone like Don Mattingly. And it leads to a lot of speculation that he could go into coaching pretty soon after his retirement. And it's, it's always just such a really complicated situation, especially now in the 21st century where salaries have exploded for most full-time players in the majors where he, he doesn't necessarily need to work anymore, but he has some of those attributes that it may just be in his nature to like stay around the game as a coach or whatever. Uh, and is that something you think is important for the Marlins to try to keep him around their team specifically in some sort of role, whether it's as an advisor or a spring training instructor, or even in a stable coaching job in the near future? Yeah, I think it'd be great for the organization because he's the type of player who just, he loves playing the game. You know, the past few years for him have been really uh, injury riddled seasons. And I think if it wasn't for those injuries, he would continue to play. But we're, you're just at the point right now where his body's just saying, I can't do this anymore. But um, 
you know, to, to have a guy like that in the clubhouse, um, to share his knowledge with this young crop of talent that the Marlins have coming up, I think it's going to be very beneficial. Um, you know, he's he's uh, a bilingual guy as well, so you know he can, you know, there's there's really no limits to what he can do. Um, I, I think, yeah, I think it'd be great. Uh, guy had what a, the almost a 15 year career, um, so played for four different organizations. Uh, just has a wealth of knowledge that. I, I'm ag- I agree with you 100. percent I think he'd make a great coach, and if you're the Marlins, yeah, keep him in house. You know, have him. Sh- he's already familiar with this team anyway. Have him share that knowledge with some of the younger guys. That'll be curious to see, you know, how quickly they try to pursue that. Because as we speak at this moment, um, before the GM meetings, they don't even have a, a full 2020 co- coaching staff actually filled out. I don't expect that he'll be a candidate to make that leap quite as quickly. But uh, they brought in a pretty well-claimed hitting instructor, James Rousen, from the Twins, but he's going to be serving as the bench coach, and they're giving him a title of offensive coordinator. And it still leaves their actual hitting coach positions undeclared because they made a change in the middle of last year, bringing in a tandem of Jeff Livesay and Eric Duncan. Uh, But the production down the stretch didn't necessarily make a big jump with those guys in charge. So it's still a little fluid, the situation on their major league team. But he's, he's a guy that it's... It just really sticks out to me, like all the comments that come out of that Marlins clubhouse about people looking up to him, even understanding, especially in 2019, where he wasn't going to provide any value on the field. They just seem to have this much deeper respect for him. And um, aside from that, I think I got even more than I was hoping for out of you, LJ. Uh, You have a couple articles up on the website from recent days that I'm going to tell people to check out, uh, where we have this long series called Deep Sea Fishing, where we're going to be looking at pretty much every single notable free agent still out there in the Marlins out there in free agency that could be a fit for the Marlins. If they're willing to spend at a significant level. Um, I know you've mentioned a couple guys, a couple like stopgap shortstop types that could make a lot of sense for the team. So we're going to make sure to go through that entire category of players among other things. And we're going to bring you on the podcast, hopefully again in the real near future, as there are some more compelling rumors to talk about. Sound good. All right. Sounds good to me. I'm looking very forward to it. Uh, I know I had some big shoes to fill. I, I don't know if I quite have the resume of Kelly Sacco, the last guest, but uh, I enjoyed being on and looking very forward to uh, joining you again. I had a great time and uh, go fish. There are still almost two months left here in the year 2019. A few Marlins transactions expected before the end of the year, whether it's in free agent signings or trades, something related to the Rule 5 draft or the space on their 40-man roster. We're expecting a little more before the year ends. Uh, But for all intents and purposes, the decade has wrapped up from 2010 to 2019. The whole 2010s, we can put that one in the books. No more games to be played. No more champions left to be decided. And I won't try to sugarcoat it. This has been a bad decade to be a Marlins fan. Ten seasons all 10 missing the postseason, all 10 finishing below 500, only two years in there where they even entered the month of September having much of a prayer of championship hopes. It's been a lot of interesting individual stretches. Of course, a lot of those guys were traded when they still had something left in the tank, and it has been painful to see those guys start building on their legacies in new uniforms 
and somewhat overshadowing what they did here with the Marlins. But if you are a diehard fan, if you listen to Fish Bites, you're on Fish Stripes, if you follow this team through thick and thin, then you've seen it all, and you're not going to forget about these guys. Ten years is a long time, a big chunk of Marlins history. There have been two rebrandings, one major one, and a move into a new ballpark, new uniforms, several different managers, and as I, re- I mentioned already, just constant roster turnover on the player side and at the highest level, at the ownership level. It's been a very significant decade for the team, as any decade is for any franchise, and it has, moving forward, has put them on a really encouraging course, as you've heard from me on this podcast and throughout us the entire season, why we're so encouraged with what they're building and how it seems to be something different with higher hopes of not only being competitive again, but staying that way. Before we get there yet, though, we still need to look back at what this whole decade has been at the major league level, and we've already touched on the mediocrity as a team, which is why I'd rather turn my attention on the individual side with a Fish Stripes quiz, an audio quiz, the first of its kind. If it sucks, then we won't do it again, but we'll just try it here, wrapping up this episode of Fish Bites. Over the past decade, during the 2010s, I wanted to pick out the statistical leaders in a variety of categories for the Marlins, picking out the individual player that did the most of something or the best of something for the Marlins during these 10 years overall. No one player was here for all 10 years, as I'm sure you're aware of. Some were more than others. You'll be surprised by a few of the entries on these lists that um, were only passing through very briefly, but made a big impression in a particular way. No cheating in this case. Well, I'll try to keep the gaps between question and answer very quick so you don't have any time to listen up. And uh, in addition to all these categories I'm about to read, we'll have a few extra ones, bonus ones, only available on fishstripes.com when you find the posting of this episode. So be sure to follow up on that if you're not already listening from the site directly. We begin with games played. Pretty basic one. These will be an increasing level of difficulty, so we start with a few layups, and then by the end it'll be close to impossible to guess. But to start us off, who had the most games played for the Marlins during the 2010s? Of course, it's Giancarlo Stanton, 986 games, averaging almost 100 a year during the decade, even though these past two years have been played in pinstripes in New York came up to the big leagues in 2010 as Mike Stanton, uh, as sure a thing as any hitting prospect has been for the Marlins, and almost immediately he showed that promise, even with the injuries, even with the strikeout issues and some streakiness, he more or less has lived up to the hype as one of the great power hitters of his generation. If you just include the Giancarlo Stanton years, he went as Mike in those first two, 2010-2011. Even if you wanted to separate the names as like two different people, then he would still be leading in the latter. That's how much of a big lead he had over any other player. Parts of eight seasons and finishing it off in 2017 with that well-deserved NL MVP award. Moving on to stolen bases. Very different type of player from Stanton, but one that has some ties to him. And this one was not particularly close either. The leading base stealer for the Marlins during this decade, D. Gordon, 148 steals. 
and only one guy was even half as many as 148. That was Emilio Bonifacio with 82. Gordon, just a few years with the Marlins, but a really dynamic leadoff hitter um, that first year in 2015, and then he finished off strong in 2017 as well. What stuck out is that under Don Mattingly, ever since Gordon left these past two years, the Marlins have been near the bottom in the league in steals. Some of that has been the whole style of game being played at the major league level. So it's not only the Marlins that are moving away from that, but especially the drop-off is so significant, seeing that D had some individual seasons where he stole about as many as the Marlins do collectively these days. He was that one guy that Mattingly gave the green light to all the time and trusted to take an extra base. So I do miss seeing that style that he brought and, of course, the charisma and creativity that he brought to the clubhouse as well. D. Gordon, good Marlin, and now with the Mariners the last two years. On the mound, I'm asking you, which Marlins pitcher had the most hit-by-pitches allowed during the decade? As a hint, it's a guy that is currently on the Marlins roster, so that should be a pretty big hint. It is Jose Orania, 37 hit-by-pitches during this decade. Um, pretty significant lead over everybody else. Next few names were in their 20s and had much more endings logged than Orania has. This is similar to stolen bases. There's been a pretty notable trend going on across baseball where hit-by-pitches are way up as pitchers are using their breaking balls a lot more to get swings and misses and chases out of the zone. Those can be a little more difficult to control get a grip on physically gripping the baseball itself and throwing it the same way every time. As you know, that's not an excuse for Arania. He doesn't use very many breaking balls by reputation and the stats back it up. Uh, Most of the times when he's plunking an opponent, it's on that high nineties fastball of his, where some of it give him the benefit of the doubt. I guess that it's not always intentional. Sometimes just trying to pitch inside and it tails a little bit too far in, or hitters not getting out of the way, being surprised, I don't know. But when you add it all up together, in terms of a total hit-by-pitches of the decade, that was Arania, number the opening day starter the past two years, and as we move into a new decade, the Marlins may be moving on from him, or at least minimizing his role. Flipping back to the plate, what about batting average? Who had the highest batting average out of all the Marlins? during this decade. For qualifying purposes, I kept the standards pretty loose here. Anybody that played multiple seasons in the semi-regular role, they didn't need to be a league leader, qualifier, or any of that. I kept it pretty loose to try to get some interesting results. Uh, In this case, though, it was a pretty household name, one that we mentioned just a couple minutes ago. D. Gordon, 309 batting average during his Marlins years. Yelich, Christian Yelich was second, 290. So a pretty notable gap right there with Gordon, never known as a disciplined hitter. If he was going to get on base, he was going to do it mostly on the merits of his bat and his wheels to leg out infield hits when possible. Only a few notable exceptions. Gordon was not going to hit the ball over the wall, but the fact that he was able to get so many hits in the first place was very valuable to the Marlins offense. Flipping that exact same stat around, who allowed the lowest batting average of the Marlins pitchers. And for this one, like I said, pretty loose with the standards. Multiple seasons with the Marlins during the decade you were eligible. Any sort of 
semi-regular active roster spot was good enough. In this case, I don't think anybody would have been able to guess it all that well. Randy Choate, the veteran left-hander, a couple of years with the Marlins after they moved into the new ballpark, he allowed a 164 opponent's batting average in that very specialized role, aged very gracefully. At this point, I think he's retired, but I'm not even entirely sure because those guys can stick around quite a while when they're having their workload limited. 164, most of that, of course, facing opposing left-handers, and he had that really unique delivery that made it hard for guys to pick up on. The team, during his couple of years, weren't all that competitive whatsoever, but he did his part as part of that trade coming over from the Dodgers. Uh, the next three in line, A.J. Ramos, Kyle Bearclaw, Carter Caps. You remember Carter Caps. So all three of those guys are next up, but not particularly close. They're much closer to 200 than to Choate's 164. Choate, a very unique place in the 2010s Marlins legacy. So we have the batting average leaders revealed. Uh, what about on base percentage? I already dropped the hint that D. Gordon did not do much outside of hits to get on base, so you can already cross him off the list as the OBP leader. Uh, but who do you think it is? Someone that you're, I'm sure you're very familiar with and has gone on to get on base pretty well with his new team. It is Christian Yelich, 369 OBP during this decade, followed by Stanton at 360. With Yelich, you could see it pretty early on how gifted he was as an offensive player. The Before we even popularized the term exit velocity, he was able to get a lot of exit velocity on his batted balls. And when he wasn't getting good pitches to hit, great awareness of the strike zone. Those years with the Marlins, they cover his age 21 to 25 seasons before he even came into his prime. And that's something that we've become very aware of now that he's with the Brewers, where he's taken the slugging to a next level. But this just goes to show that the natural understanding of a plate approach, that was always there with Yelich, and that made him a valuable player his first handful of years in the big leagues. Next up is strikeouts. Total strikeouts by Marlins pitchers during the decade. The finish here was neck and neck between the top two strikeout artists. They were teammates for several seasons, primarily in the Marlins rotation. A big contrast in styles and stuff from the two of them, but nearly identical totals. So pat yourself on the back if you get either one. The strikeout leader during the decade, the late great Jose Fernandez, 589. And he did that over just parts of four seasons and not a single full, full season at the major league level. 2013, as a rookie superstar, shortened a little bit uh, to protect his innings at the end of the year. 2014 and 2015, both of those years abbreviated by Tommy John surgery that happened in between. And then 2016, second to last weekend of the season, just as he was really establishing himself as a superstar, the fateful boat crash that took his life. Number two was Tom Kohler, 586, just three strikeouts differentiating them during the decade. Kohler, uh, the league leader, the league leader, the franchise leader in a variety of counting stats during the decade outside of strikeouts, made more starts at Marlins Park than anybody else has thus far, didn't have the overwhelming fastball 
or super high swing and miss rate, but the total almost identical to Fernandez, a big part of the Marlins clubhouse during that move to a new ballpark and currently still trying to keep his pitching career alive, this time in a relief role in the Pirates organization. How about complete games? Complete games pitched by Marlins pitchers during the decade. If you've been following baseball, you know that those have been far and few between in recent years, definitely fading as there's more emphasis on relievers and more consciousness about the health of pitchers and trying to protect them from themselves. So you can guess that the leader in Marlins Complete Games was not someone that is currently in the rotation, which is so dependent on the young arms they have. It's one of the more accomplished pitchers the Marlins have had, Ricky Nolasco. Six complete games during the decade before moving on. Uh, He's followed by Henderson Alvarez and Anibal Sanchez. Both of those guys had four each. And Alvarez is the one that I'm still really infatuated with. It's so hard to believe that Henderson Alvarez is still in his 20s. Most recently participated in the Premier 12 uh, World Baseball World Cup thingy that was happening overseas in qualifying for the Olympics. He's he's still an active pitcher professionally somewhat, although this event was not sanctioned by Major League Baseball or anything like that. And so he's still trying to hang around, trying to make it back to the major league level. And I think people forget just how good he was early in his career because he didn't pitch quite as many total endings as Nolasco or Sanchez did for the Marlins. And yet when he was on top of his game, so efficient, so efficient and had so much control of the game uh, all by himself. So really wish him the best of luck. And researching this was a very refreshing um, blast from the past to see his name so high up in that one category. A few more offensive categories to touch on here for the decade. How about pinch hits, total pinch hits coming off the bench for the Marlins during the decade. So think guys that were squeezed out of a starting role, either because of their ability or their surrounding teammates, ones that had to make their living in those difficult situations, coming off cold off the bench and trying to produce and the answer was uh, by a pretty big margin over everybody else. The future Hall of Famer, Ichiro Suzuki, 51 Marlins pinch hits during his three seasons. Greg Dobbs, now that's a name. <laughs> Greg Dobbs had 32 during the decade as well. So he's the only one that was anywhere in shouting distance from Ichiro. Uh, Ichiro, that first year with the Marlins, seemed like he might have nothing left in the tank, and then he really surprised people. Uh, the following year, and of course, ending up sticking around for what was three seasons um, as a complimentary piece to what was the best outfield in all of baseball. Here is a really obscure one for you guys. Most games in the cleanup spot for the Marlins. This is one obviously outside of the players' control. They don't make the lineups. Most of these, uh, Don Mattingly's decision, before that, Mike Redman, Ozzy Guillen, so things that the players can't control themselves, but putting someone in the cleanup spot does, of course, send a certain message about how much you trust them as a run producer. There's still certain stereotypes about cleanup hitters that should help you narrow down the list. During these 10 seasons, who do you think started number four the most of all? The answer, Marcel Ozuna, 241 such games with the Marlins from 2013 to 2017. 
and I think the biggest share of those were actually in his final Marlins season, where he was overshadowed by Stanton for obvious reasons, as Stanton went on to win the MVP, lead the majors in home runs, etc. Ozuna was almost as good, Uh, just an amazing run producer as well, who racked up a lot of extra base hits in that spot. If you're wondering who's next on this list, the rest of the top five, Stanton was number two, Justin Bohr was number three, Casey McGee, Casey McGee number four in, in starts as a cleanup hitter, and then Logan Morrison, Logan Morrison also with a few dozen starts in the cleanup spot during these years. Total saves by Marlins relievers during the decade. Another one like the cleanup spot that is dictated by the manager. He has to put you in a position to close out a game under those conditions that make it a save opportunity. This one extremely close, just as a couple of our previous categories have been. As you currently know, the Marlins bullpen does not have a lot of decorated relievers, so you can rule that out. It's nobody actively with the team, but uh, the guy on top is still a major league pitcher. Actually, here's a big hint. He is a free agent this offseason, so he is available again, and it would be interesting, actually, if the Marlins did pursue him because he's had some success since leaving the Marlins, although not as a closer. Most of his closing experience came with the Marlins. It is Steve Ciszek, 94 saves as a member of the team before he was traded to the Cardinals and then he ended up going to the Mariners and most recently the Cubs. Right behind him, 92 saves, A.J. Ramos, who at this moment I believe is still recovering from a series of arm issues, but at the best of his powers, he had that really filthy breaking ball and good enough fastball command didn't make it easy on anybody with him a little prone to handing out free passes but by keeping the ball in the ballpark and with a pretty decent swing and missability Ramos was successful most of the time so the moral of that category you could say is that the Marlins really didn't have any consistent shutdown relievers during this decade some that had their really bright seasons and good moments there were segments of years where they had one of the deeper bullpens in the league but never that like one guy that you could really, really count on to put games out of reach, and hopefully they'll be able to develop a few of those with their current crop of young pitching talent. The final quiz question here is a very particular one. It doesn't fall into the same categories of the others, not looking for a leader in one categories, but trying to identify one player just based on a statistical accomplishment. The only Marlin during the decade that had a qualified season with more walks than strikeouts. That's becoming a true rarity in baseball in 2019 and moving into the new decade as there are more swings and misses than ever. But that should be a hint that this happened pretty early on in the decade where there was a qualified season of a Marlins hitter. So at least 502 plate appearances, someone that was in their starting lineup for most of the year. And he won an entire season with more walks than strikeouts. I'll give you a few more seconds to dwell on that. It is Jose Reyes in his lone Marlins season of 2012. 63 walks, 56 strikeouts, batting near the top of the Marlins lineup. He was durable for most of the year. He was very excitable on the bases. 
played a steady shortstop position, one of the few bright spots from that Marlins season, and it turned out to be his only year. Even though he had signed a six-year, $106 million deal, he was dumped to the Toronto Blue Jays as part of that mega 12-player trade, if I remember that correctly, and he had helped him validate that contract in his one Marlins season by being a really infectious offensive player at the top of their lineup. As always, thank you for listening. I hope at least a few of you found that quiz to be amusing. Uh, I'd like to know your success rate. Get in touch with me uh, on Fish Stripes, on social media, fishstripes.com, on Twitter at my personal account, at Real Eli. Let me know your score <laughs> on those categories. There were 12 categories we went through here, and there will be additional ones on the posting of this episode on the website. Also, take your early predictions about the 2020s. Who's going to play the most games for the Marlins this coming decade? Who's going to steal the most bases? Who's going to get on base the most? Uh, your strikeout leader. Uh, it's going to be an interesting combination. And you can see by the variety of players here that uh, some of those won't even be possible to predict. Some of them will be traded, you would think, to the Marlins at some point. Others picked up in free agency for unlikely roles or untraditional roles. And, and others are players within their own organization that will convert to different positions or learn different types of skill sets. It, if you mentioned a lot of those names to people 10 years ago and said how this player is going to factor in to the next decade of Marlins teams, uh, it would have been almost impossible to expect one way or the other. That's how this game goes sometimes, where it's not so much about being able to identify particular superstar players, but just getting a lot of good talent uh, for the right roles at the right time and then benefiting from those players production and having them really fit in to the team's culture moving forward and that's what we look forward to with this Marlins team is seeing if these new decision makers that they have in place right now are able to put this whole thing together in a productive way and find the individual players that will be remembering forever more fish bites coming at you again next week and the week after that and the rest of the offseason as we finish out this decade of Marlins baseball. Thank you for finishing it out with us. I'm Eli Sussman. Go fish! <laughs>